When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John, what lured you to a basketball book? This is not the area that I expected to find you in. <laughs> I love basketball, uh, especially college basketball. I, I dreamed of playing all sports when I was a kid, uh, like every other kid, and uh, played um, played sports. And I was good enough to to start in basketball, baseball, and football when I was a junior in high school. And uh, that was about the peak of my career. But I love basketball. Um, again, I loved all of them. Uh, but we back then we played each sport, you know, in season. And um, it was a, each sport was a lot of fun. Uh, dreamed of playing in college. Never got close. Um, a, a glaring lack of talent. <laughs> and uh, but it's became a big sports fan since then, especially college sports. And uh, we live here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, we go to all UVA home games here, and my wife is a uh, uh, Tar Heel. My daughter's a Tar Heel, so we have that going on too. So we go to a bunch of games in Chapel Hill. Throughout the winter, starting really in uh, around the 1st of December, we watch a lot of basketball and keep up with the ACC. And so that's sort of the background as far as why, um, you know, I've written two football novels uh, and one baseball novel because I had the stories for those books and always thought about a basketball novel and um, didn't really have the story until a couple of years ago it came together. How did it come together? There were three or four different inspirations that all kind of uh, landed at the same time. Uh, the first inspiration I just told you is love for the game and and, and know a little bit about college basketball. Um, the, the biggest inspiration was about two years ago, I found a um, magazine article somewhere online, I think, about a team of uh, top players from South Sudan who were in the U.S. Uh, during a summer showcase tournament. These tournaments, you know, rage all over the country. And um, they're great tournaments because kids from come all over the world and all the college coaches are there. And these kids dream of playing college basketball here. And so it's a, it's a great atmosphere. And these kids from South Sudan showed up and just stole the show with their uh, exuberant play, their, their dunking, their shot blocking, their, you know, the great athletes. And they, they really captured the imagination of the fans and crowds. And so somebody wrote an article about that. The coach was very inspirational. He, um, he talked about how many problems their country has how these kids grew up in such a violent place and how he wanted to use uh, basketball maybe to uh, teach them certain lessons, teach them leadership. So maybe they can, you know, draw on that to help rebuild their country. So it was very idealistic, man. Uh, that was a fun article. Um, I've always uh, remembered the story of Lenny Bias, uh, who I saw play on television in the early 80s, never in person. But we live now in ACC country, and I have a lot of friends around here who who grew up watching all the ACC greats and 
and they uh, they talk about Lenny Bias the same way they talk about Michael Jordan. I mean, they, they played about the same time. They were rivals, uh, and Lenny Bias was uh, an equal to Michael Jordan in college and had great things planned for uh, the NBA when, you know, he died suddenly. Um, so those all kind of came together about a year ago when we were uh, – <laughs> I was in the bar with some buddies having a beer uh, – arguing about number one seeds and thinking about our brackets and uh, COVID was just hitting. And on the big screen, it was a sports bar, the big screen uh, flashed March Madness canceled. And I had never thought about that. They can't cancel March Madness. And, uh, you know, we, we were all depressed and, and just, you know, lost for a few days without our brackets. And so uh, at that moment I said, okay, I'm going to, for some reason, I'm inspired to write this book and maybe if I'm lucky, get it out a year from now, uh, March of 21. And that'll be my, that's, that's my basketball fix for right now. I'll get, the, I'll get a book written. And that's, that's how it happened. How does inspiration, broad question, how does inspiration happen for you? Because choosing the books is as important as sitting down. Choosing the subject matter is pretty important. If I look back at the, um, at the, the backlist, um, and had to pick one source of inspiration above all. Of, of course, obviously, they're all related to the law, except for the sports books and the kids' books. Uh, it would have to be something I saw in a magazine article, something I – and I'm always, you know, surfing online looking for stuff. Or I, I, I still love old-fashioned magazines, and we get a bunch of them at the house, and, and I flip through those and read a lot of articles and – it, probably a magazine article inspires inspired more books than anything else. Another broad question, but what is your writing process like? It's fairly disciplined. Um, I start on January the 1st, start a legal thriller uh, for that year. And I give myself six months, uh, which is plenty of time. Uh, I work five days a week, unless we're traveling. Um usually from about uh, seven in the morning till about noon. Uh, a good day is um, a thousand words, sometimes 1500. And when you approach it like that, the pages are gonna pile up pretty fast. Um, I'll finish, um, the goal is July 1, like right now. Today is April 27th, pub date for Suli. Um, I'm two thirds of the way finished with the next book. I started in January with COVID. I mean, we can't go anywhere. So I have not gone anywhere for a year. So I have nothing to do but write. Um, I'll turn the book in um, to my publisher late June. We'll spend six weeks doing all of the edits, revisions, all the touch up. And uh, then I'll take off a couple of weeks in August Although I take off year round, if we want to go somewhere, we go, you know, we do it. I don't have a real job. And then normally by Labor Day, I'm bored again. I'm writing a small book and a small book is going to be one of my kids books. I've written seven of those or a, uh, a sports novel. Uh, I, I love to write the short sports novel. Suli was not a short book. It kept growing on me. Um, that's sort of the process. I mean, I, I, uh, this morning, I got up at six o'clock, as I always do, and uh, made the coffee. And I love to go to my office, which is behind the house in a small writing cabin. And uh, at seven o'clock with 
strong coffee and no phones, no fax, no internet, no music, nothing but, you know, a screen, a keyboard and a dark room. And I still, after 45 books, um, really look forward to that. You never dread it? Never dread marching over? To, oh, I guess you don't have to do it on the days that you dread it, but you never march over there with, oh, man, today I don't have it. Never, never. Uh, there have been very few days when I have not gone over there. Uh, I had the flu once, and after, you know, suffering around the house for two or three days, I started walking to my office when my wife was gone. Um to just peck out a few words and to keep my sanity. I cannot recall a day when I could not write something, even a bad day. Like, I, you know, maybe something happens early in the morning, I get distracted, or maybe there's some bad news in the family or whatever, you know, bad weather, whatever it could be to really distract. Um, I can still get, uh, you know, a few words in um, because I, I want to make progress you know, every, every day. I envy you. I find writing to be lonely. I find it to be very fulfilling, but I find it to be a lonely exercise. And you're, you're making it sound like almost a meditative exercise because you've taken the music out of it. You are folk. You are there focused on the words. Yeah. And, and the words, it's all about words. And it's, uh, I, um, when I, when I write a sentence, um, when I'm finished, when I'm finished with it, uh, I'll say it out loud two or three times. Uh, to see how it sounds. Um, occasionally, I will sacrifice good grammar for something that sounds better. Um, so I'm always, I'm always talking to myself, uh, but I'm repeating what I have, what I have written. And when I start each morning at you know, seven, seven thirty, whatever time I get over there, the first thing I do is read uh, what I wrote the day before and do a lot of editing. I clean it up as I go. So when I finish, it's in pretty good shape. Uh, but that really gets you back in the rhythm of the story and the characters. And so I'm, I read it out loud. I mean, believe me, all the doors are locked so nobody could hear me because I, I'm, I'm making a lot of uh, noise as I read uh, the stuff out loud. When I say to you 300 million copies sold 28 consecutive number one bestsellers, that means what to you? When you hear that, you couldn't have imagined that. I did not imagine that. I did not. I could not. As you said, I could not. No, no one could Im imagine that. Uh, when I started, uh, the firm was published 30 years ago in March of 91, and it was a bestseller uh, immediately. And it was, you know, terribly, terribly exciting for any, anyone who can go through that. Even back then, I had, I had no idea, uh, you know, where the career was going or if that would be the only book or you know, I, I didn't know. And I, I don't recall thinking about it too much. We were caught up in the moment. Uh, even today, after 45 books, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 66 years old. I'm blessed with good health. I plan to be around for, statistically, I should now live to be 91, which is 25 more years. Um, and, you know, I, will, I, will I do a book a year for 25 more years? Uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell. I, I hope so. Hope I have the stories, but it, you know, if, if I don't, I don't. I'm, I, I don't. I've never sat around thinking about where is this going and how far will it go and how and how long will the books be popular. I'm, I'm, I don't. I don't think in those terms. You mentioned the firm, so a time to kill was not immediately successful. 
it was a total flop. It came out in June of 1989, small unknown publisher. I was unknown, obviously. Um, they printed 5,000 hardback copies and the book, the book sold well around Memphis where we lived. <laughs> that was it. Um, nowhere else. It never went back for, I mean, initially it did not go back for a reprint or for paperback. Uh, it just dead in the water when it came out. And I, um, I'd worked on it for three years and I, I was also practicing law about 50 or 60 hours a week. And my wife was having babies. Life was pretty, you know, life was fun. Life was pretty exciting, but I didn't, I didn't have a lot of spare time. And so I told my wife, um, I said, look, I'm going to write one more book. And if it flops too, you can forget this little secret hobby and I'll just be a lawyer and, you know, start suing people again. And, um, and that's what I did. Uh, and, and the second book was The Firm, and that changed everything. True or false, you bought 1,000 of those initial 5,000 books yourself and tried selling them. I bought 1,000 books. They shipped me 1,500, um, and I was upset at that. because I, I had to pay for these things, okay? And, and so I called whoever I called back then, and, and I said, I'm sending 500 copies back. I, books back. We had 1,500 copies stacked in my little law office, um, pristine first editions of A Time to Kill. At one point, there were 1,500, and those would now sell for about $4,000 each. So it wasn't, it wasn't the only fortune I lost practicing law, but I got rid of 500, sent those back, and I had 1,000, and I had to sell those things. And I learned quickly that uh, selling books is much harder than writing books. How much doubt was in there when you write a book that takes you three years to write and all of a sudden you're looking around and you're saying this isn't working? Enormous, enormous doubt. Enormous, enormous doubt at every step of the, of the way. Uh, I'd never written before. I'd never attempted to publish before. I'd never, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing uh, I, I knew how to read a good suspenseful novel, knew how to find one and read one. There were certain authors that I enjoyed reading, but to actually uh, uh, do it, I, I, had, I really didn't have an idea. And to prove that, the first draft of A Time to Kill was 900 pages long, and we cut a third of that in the editing because there was just so much fluff and unneeded material that I'd thrown everything into this novel and I had a very good editor who said, we're going to make it better, but we got to cut this stuff. And, um, I said, okay, that those 300 pages you just cut, that's a year out of my life. And I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to, I'm going to get serious about the planning, the outlining, the groundwork before I write the first word, I'm going to make sure I know where I'm going and it's lean and fast and there, there are no wasted words because I'm not going to waste any more time. It was a valuable lesson. How many times was a time to kill rejected? There were about 15 agents and about 15 editors who said no. Back then, this is long before the internet, back then it was a classic submission rejection game you played with New York. And you could submit back then to editors at the houses. Can't do that now. Uh, you have to go through an agent now. Uh, so there were there were fifteen or so, fifteen or so agents, and about that many editors who said no. It was somewhat discouraging, but at the same time, again, I was 
I was busy as a lawyer. I wasn't making any money, but I was very busy and I had things to do. I couldn't sit around all day and uh, bemoan the fact that I got another rejection letter. And I also took each rejection as another step closer to getting published. That's why I had convinced myself of that. And that eventually happened. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste in Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Well, the light sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. You said the firm changed everything. What do you regard or what do you remember about that time and how it changed and what changed how quickly? It changed what I did as a profession. I was suddenly bored with law practice. I was suddenly bored with politics. So I quit both of those. And I was determined to write full time or give it my best Um taking the money. I got a lot of money for the, the, the movie of the firm and the book of the firm up front, which was a total shock. Uh, so I had money in the bank for the first time in my life. Uh, and I was, I was determined to live off that, you know, and keep writing. It changed where we live. We moved uh, from the town we grew up in, a suburb of Memphis, to Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, we'd both gone to school at Ole Miss. We got married in Oxford. We moved back to uh, the university town, which we'd always wanted to. So that was a huge change. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, big changes. And and I was again, I, I was writing hard to to get the next book out. Did you enjoy leaving the law? Tremendously. I walked out the door. I don't think I turned off the lights. It was um, practicing law in a small town is. Um, it, you're not going to make a lot of money and you can have a lot of clients who can't pay you. And I realized early on in my brief legal career that I had a hard time saying no to people who were in trouble, who really needed a lawyer. I just couldn't send them away. And so I took a lot of stuff I shouldn't have taken because I couldn't get paid. And uh, it probably helped me politically when I ran for office. I got a lot of votes, but <laughs> not a lot of money. And so you leave without turning off the lights. And is there anything about it that you miss? I've been asked that question um, over the years, and I can't think of anything I missed about practicing law. I was one of, you know, 50 small town guys around the courthouse, all doing the same thing, all trying to make a buck. And uh, it was, again, it was a tough way to, to earn a living. And um, and you deal with people all day long who are in trouble. And so your clients are, you know, fragile people who you're trying to help through a system they cannot begin to contemplate. And it's, it's, 
it takes a lot out of you. So no, I I don't I never missed anything practicing law. Who are the people, powerful people, writers, celebrities, anyone you want to choose who you've been taken aback when they say, you know what, you speak to me, your books speak to me, and you're like, wow, that's hugely flattering. Oh, I can't. I've drawn a blank. I, I I'm not sure I hear that um, from people. I don't I don't get out a whole lot. Um, I don't run in circles where people are going to talk about my books. Uh, it's, it's, it's always nice when somebody does get close enough to say something about the books. You know, I have a very close circle of friends, um, that, you know, friendships I work hard at maintaining. And, and when, I, when I'm with those people, the last thing we talk about is books and movies. Uh, we talk about, you know, everything else. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but I, I can't really, um, uh, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, uh, told me, Years ago, I can't remember if he was in the White House or he'd already left the White House, but he he was very complimentary. He he read he uh, he reads all my books. I send him a autographed copy of each book as they as they as they come out and ahead of time. And he always writes a note. Barbara Bush was another fine lady. I always sent a book to. She always um, sent a note. I did her literacy foundation twice in Houston. And uh, we got on very well. She she was a big fan. So, yeah, there, there are a few folks like that along the way. How much editing do you require at this point? A uh, fair amount in that I still listen to people. I listen to my wife who reads it first and has at times strong opinions about um, plots, especially female characters. Uh, we have we have very healthy discussions about the fiction. Once I, once she goes through it, and once I, uh, you know, make some of the changes that she suggests, I send it to my uh, agent in New York, David Gurnett. David bought the firm in 1990 when he was an editor at Doubleday, and so he published my first five books at Doubleday. And we became very close friends uh, with the same age. So we've kind of grown up together in the industry. In 1995, my uh, then my first agent died suddenly. And I convinced David to step into that role as the agent. And he, he's been there ever since. So I, I don't have a technical editor at Doubleday because David does all the editing. He goes through and does a thorough... Um, line edit of the whole manuscript and um, sends it back. And it's not always a lot of fun to go through that again. I will um, use probably half of his suggestions. It's usually a word here and a word there or a paragraph that doesn't make any sense or something that should be deleted is unnecessary, you know, editorial work. And we slog through that uh, because again, I still listen to the people who matter. And then once I clean that up um, and send that, it, it, we submit it then to Doubleday and we go through the process again at Doubleday. So there's a fair amount of editing. Does your wife ever pick up the manuscript, look up at you and say, John, this is just shit? Yeah, yeah. That's happened a couple of times. Um, one time I wrote a, a hundred pages of a brilliant, brilliant idea. And she... Um, she was reading in the living room and I said, uh, what do you think? She said, I hate these people. I don't like anybody in this book. I don't get the plot. 
And uh, I don't like this. And I said, well, other than that, what do you think about it? <laughs> That's she, so uh, vulnerable. God almighty. To prove her point, she took the manuscript and just tossed it on the floor. Very dramatic. <laughs> and uh, she's so glad she did that because she's laughed about it ever since. Uh, so, yeah. And I, and I said, to my, I said, okay, I'll show you. Uh, so I sent the book to David in New York. And he called and said, I don't like anything about this book. So I, I listen. I still listen to the people who matter. And I put that one aside. How often does that happen, though, John, where your judgment on something being good, like, did you have doubt on what you were giving them or did you think it was good and they're telling you it's garbage? I thought it was brilliant and I was so blind to it. Uh, I just couldn't, I, I didn't see the problems. And um, I'm not sure it's happened before. Usually what happens before I start a book, and this has been going on for over 30 years around my house, Um I'll say to Renee, I'll say, listen, I need, I need, I need 30 seconds and 30 seconds is too much time to pitch an idea. If you have to, if you have to take up more than 30 seconds to pitch your story, you probably got a problem with it. Okay. And so just think about it, nail it down to what is your, what is your story with the firm? It was like bright young law student joins a law firm that's secretly owned by the mafia. Once you join the firm, you never leave. Bam. You know, that's, that's a quick version. But you've got to you got to have you got to have a solid story, and so I'll, I'm always pitching ideas at her um, about a possible novel, the next novel, and and we bat it back and forth, and uh, some some she really likes, and some she really doesn't like, and usually if she reacts badly to a brilliant idea, <laughs> I, yeah, I want to fight for a while, but it's not gonna it's not gonna work. So it's a it's a it's a process. We still do it all the time. Uh, we do it all the time. I'll see a headline or a news story uh, about the opioid crisis. And I'll, I've got several ideas. I'll pitch one and she'll say, no, it's just too depressing. I, no, it's too, you know, so we, we have those discussions all the time. 66-year-old John Grisham pick up any of his earlier work and wince uh, because he's learned so much that he's like, man, I was such an amateur back then. You know what? I never pick it up. I never pick it up. I have never gone back and read one of my books. I'm sorry. I read Bleachers because I agreed to read the audio for Bleachers, which was pure misery. I'll never do it again. Four days in a sound room reading your book um, with no theatrical skill, no flair for drama, nothing that you're supposed to have because you're an actor because I'm just the author. And I went hoarse. I lost my voice. I said, I am never doing this again. I, I'm, and I mean, it. I'm not going to do it again. So that's the only book I've ever read after I wrote it. You talked about the process a while ago. By the time we go through all this editing and you're grinding out the, the next, you know, 500 page version, the next draft, that's probably five or six drafts right there. When we get to, when I get to the end of it, I am really fed up with it. I mean, I've, I've had it, I've done with it. And I put it aside. I forget about it. Doubleday's going to publish it. And I am constantly embarrassed by people who ask me why I did so-and-so in The Partner 15 years ago. And I'll say, I really don't remember. I, but I don't go back and read these things. Is there a question that you get from your fans more than any other in that regard from all of your books? Is there a question, something they deeply want to know that you get all the time? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just mentioned the partner. Uh, the partner has a really uh, unexpected ending that I thought was risky. 
And I wrote it that way and I showed it to Renee. She read the end of it. And to my surprise, she liked it. And then I showed it to David in New York. To my surprise, he liked it. So I said, okay, we're going to run with this. And that ending has generated more uh, hate mail than anything I've ever done. <laughs> I still get letters from some guy in New Zealand who will read the partner in paperback and be so upset by the ending that he'll take the time to write me a letter. That's the one thing I've done that generates a lot of response, I guess. Would you change anything about that? I don't, you know, I've never thought about going back and changing anything. Um, I, again, I just, I don't want to go back. It doesn't sound like fun, John. Like you're saying, I, I know you've said that this is fun. This, uh, when it's not fun for you, you won't do it anymore. But what you're describing does not sound like fun. You know, the, the creating is fun. The writing can be fun, although it's, you know, it's, it can also be tedious. The getting published, like today, I'm publishing Suli. It's a whole lot of fun. Why else, why else would I be talking to you and doing other interviews? That's a lot of fun. I mean, think about, you know, the, you know, the life of someone who writes for a living. It's a lot of fun. There, the, tedious, the tedium comes really at the end when you have to go through the editing and cleaning up and, and all that. And that's, that's only a couple, three weeks. So it's not, it's not a chore. What happens, though, is um, I'll, I'll pick up, I'll see one of my books. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do it twice a year and just open it at, random, at a random page and read a page. And about half the time, I'll say, you know, ouch. It's obvious I was in a hurry. I got to slow down. And about half the time, I'll say, I can't top that. I can't improve on that. So I'm a, I, I try to be a fair judge. But again, after reading one page of my own stuff, I'm not going to read it again for a long time. What do people need to know about or what do you want them to know about Suli? Nothing. It, it, it wasn't written to deliver a message. It was not written to, it was written to entertain. That's why I write, to entertain occasionally, and, and I guess a little bit in Suli, if, if I can write something that might raise the awareness or make people aware of a problem for the first time, you know, in, in Suli, it would be the plight of these poor folks who are refugees in Africa, and there are millions of them living in, you know, in other countries in squalor, barely to get, getting enough to eat and dying of disease, and the number keeps increasing. And it's a humanitarian crisis all over the world. We have more refugees in the world today than ever before. Um, and after the Syrian refugees, I, th I think the Sudanese are number two in population, and they're just scattered everywhere. And they can't go home, and they're living and somehow existing in these, what, what, what are becoming permanent refugee camps. And, uh, so maybe, you know, maybe some people will read that and, and stop and realize that this is going on in the world. When you look back at how you were raised in the South and the author that you've become and where and how you tackle some of these things, you have come a long way from what it is that could have formed you in the 50s and 60s. I still um, almost shudder at what I was taught what I heard, what I believed back in Jim Crow, Mississippi, um, Jim Crow, Deep South. 
it was an all white world and it was going to stay all white. And there was no tolerance for anybody else. It was um, uh, just a hard, harsh belief that in white supremacy and the fact that the black folks would never be tolerated, never given a chance. So the civil rights movement would be stopped at some point by the courts and by our politicians. It was just, you know, it was a, it was a, um, I'm still, I, I probably think about it more today than I did as we deal with race more and more, as we deal with, you know, racial injustice in this country today and, and look at the headlines right now, the issues we have right now, the problems we have right now. And me for the first time in my life, or I step back and take a look at the history of this country and the history of slavery and the history of Jim Crow and the, and the history of um, suppression and what we did for so long and, and what we're doing today. Uh, it's, it's very troubling. I, I guess to my credit, uh, years ago, um, somehow grew into this person who wanted to change and become more tolerant, more accepting, more sympathetic uh, for other people. And my wife had a big impact on that. I guess as a young politician, I realized that, um, you know, the power the government had to help or to harm. And uh, it's, it's been a journey for me if, to knowing where, I, knowing where I came from. It's been a real journey uh, to get this far uh, as someone who um, tries to see colorblind. What a unique vantage point to have on the last four years. It sounds like a whole lot of people who were sort of raised to be racist never outgrew it. The last four years inspired those people to come out, to get vocal, to uh, join groups, to threat, threaten, to to create violence. To it's it's, it's emboldened your hardcore white supremacists to um, get involved, get active, get organized. You know they 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 they're they're very active today. They're very frightening today and. Uh, the last four years have been the worst four years in this country uh, as far as leadership in the White House. Uh, it's just uh, at a time when we needed a strong leader to uh, tackle so many issues from climate change to, you know, racial injustice to immigration. To, it's a long list uh, when we needed strong leadership. Uh, we got a buffoon. We got a clown. We got an ignorant playboy. Uh, who uh, was not equipped to lead anything, and he proved it. And so, you know, I, I think we'll recover, but it's going to take a long time. How and why did you go about outgrowing your roots or your imprints? You mentioned your wife. You mentioned politics. Was there anything before that that made you reassess some of your imprinting? Yeah, I'll give you one example. Um, very, a very deep conviction in the hearts of all Southern Baptists and fundamentalists in the deep evangelicals in the deep South. There's this uh, love of the death penalty, and um, it just you know it just it, you you grow up with that. You everybody's in favor of the death penalty, and most of them still are, I guess. I grew up that way. I never really questioned the death penalty. Even as a young criminal defense lawyer, I never had a capital case, but I never really 
stop long enough to think about the death penalty. And I was um, researching a book called The Chamber in 1993, and I was on death row in Mississippi. I'd been there several times uh, talking to the guards, the administrators, the lawyers, the inmates, um, the executioner, the guy who mixed the chemicals for the gas chamber. And, and late one afternoon, I was in the, in the holding room, which is the room next to the death room, which is where they had the gas chamber back then in 93. And it was a dark, almost damp room. We were sitting on a bunk bed and, and uh, he was a former Baptist preacher who's now the chaplain at Parchment. And he, he spends the last few minutes with the condemned man before he's put to death. He's the last person to, to pray with him. And um, he, he, he asked me, he said, uh, Mr. Grisham, are you a Christian? And I said, I am. And he said, do you think Jesus would condone what we do here? <laughs> and I, I don't think I hesitated. I said, there's no way he approves what we do here. He said, you're right. This is wrong. At that moment, I flipped 180 on the death penalty and uh, realized that what we do is wrong. If it's, we can all agree that killing is wrong. So why is the state allowed to kill? And so that was one dramatic moment in my life when I changed on a very substantial issue. I don't know if you're going to have a better story than that, but what do you regard as some of the most learning you've done when you do this exhaustive research that a book requires on the front end before you even get to writing? I never thought about wrongful convictions, even as a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer, uh, somehow I missed the first wave of the high profile publicized DNA exonerations in the mid 1990s. And then in 2004, um, I saw the story about a guy who was my age, my race, my socioeconomic background, my, my Southern boy, you know, just like me, small town baseball hero or wannabe who was sent to prison by his hometown for a murder he didn't commit and almost executed, uh, came within five days of being executed in Oklahoma. And uh, I was just stunned by the story jumped into the middle of it and and wrote uh, my only nonfiction work, The Innocent Man. In doing that, uh, I became aware of the problems of the whole world of wrongful convictions. And I became uh, came to realize that there are tens of thousands of innocent people in prison in this country. And most, most white people don't believe that. Uh, black folks know it because they've lived it. They've seen it. Uh, but white, when I say that in front of a white audience, they don't, they, you know, they don't believe it. I didn't believe it. Uh, so that's been one huge change in my life because uh, I joined the board of the Innocence Project in New York, and we labor every day to free the innocent. I'm on the board of Centurion Ministries, another innocence group uh, out of Princeton. And we have a big staff and work every day to lit litigate to, to free the innocent. And I've used that as a very rich source of material for my books, my novels. Uh, I've, I've done several wrongful conviction stories and, and have several yet to do. Before you were a writer, when you were just a lawyer, uh, were you blind, blinder, or not blind at all to systemic racism in the court system, given how young you were and given what you'd been taught? 
pretty blind, pretty blind. And one reason for that was uh, the county where I practiced law uh, for 10 years um, was very well run. Uh, not that there were not racist elements, that that's everywhere. But as there were no wrongful convictions. I knew the police, I knew the prosecutor, I knew the judges, and it was a very efficient, fair system. I never had a client I thought was wrongfully convicted. I did, it never crossed my mind. Uh, I never thought that a cop would withhold evidence or fabricate evidence or the prosecutor would withhold documents. That, that never crossed my mind. I never saw it happen. Uh, so I, I was a little bit naive, I think, about uh, how the system works in other areas. Uh, but, but understanding racism for me is still a, a process. One of the biggest causes of wrongful convictions today is just systemic racism. It's just a matter of truth that white policemen treat white suspects and defendants different from black ones. It's just, that's the way it happens. And it, it's so systemic, systemic. And so, uh, ingrained in the way we police, the way we prosecute, uh, from profiling to arresting, to prosecuting, to trying, to convicting, to sentencing, every step along the way, race is a huge factor. Are you prouder of the nonfiction book than you are? I know it's like choosing between children, but given that you've dedicated so much of your life and given that it was outside of your genre, really, are you prouder of that book than you are of the others? Uh, tough question. Uh, probably so, because it, that book um, changed me in ways the other books did not. That book just sort of, my fiction took a turn for the, for the better, I think, with that book, because I started writing about issues, whether it's uh, the death penalty or mass incarceration or wrongful convictions or environmental destruction or whatever. Uh, I started writing about issues, <laughs> student loans and for-profit law schools in, in the rooster bar, uh, the, the, the scam of for-profit education. I, I took that on and I'll, you know, I'm always looking for uh, <laughs> the next set of bad guys to go after. Uh, but I, th I think the, 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 the nonfiction book changed me as a writer. Will you ever write a nonfiction book again? Uh, well, I've learned never say never. Um, there are so many, every wrongful conviction deserves a, a book because the, 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 the stories are just so rich from a storytelling point of view. Uh, there's so much human suffering and injustice and, uh, bad behavior. It's just, they're great stories. Uh, but I'm not sure I can spend the time to research and, and get it, and get it right. I'm not sure I'll do it again, but I, you know, I'll, I could do a nonfiction sports book. I could do a nonfiction so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I will do nonfiction again. I just I don't have the story right now. You say you want to never say never, but I think I can get you to say never. Will John Grisham ever write a sex scene again? It's difficult to imagine doing that. I tried it one time uh, sort of as a joke. My wife has always said men cannot write sex scenes. So I wrote a really steamy sex scene in a novel one time, these two characters, male, female, it's time for them to hop in the sack. And I got them there and I, you know, when I get them there, I'm not sure, I, I just can't start describing body parts. I, for some reason, I just, I stopped. So I went through with a sex scene and uh, I thought it was pretty steamy, you know, I liked it. 
And I, I gave that chapter to my wife. It was toward the end of the book, and she was reading chapter by chapter. And I heard her laughing. <laughs> and I went into the living room. I said, what are, you, what are you laughing at? She said, you call this a sex scene? This is a, we had this huge fight. Probably, I'll probably will not write another sex scene. Uh, John, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for spending so much time with us. We appreciate it and uh, continued success. Excellent work you've done for a long time. Thank you. My pleasure. Good luck to you. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste in Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.